Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here, either in person or watching it from home. Glad that you're part of what we're doing. I'm going to ask you to go to uh, the book of Luke, if you could, if you have a Bible with you. Luke chapter 13, maybe you have a hard copy or you have it electronically, or if you're at home, you can bring it out really quickly. Luke chapter 13, we'll be diving into another parable this morning. You may have received a letter that I sent out earlier this week, and uh, in the letter I, I noted specifically John 5.17, and in the letter what we communicated was that God's always at work. It, it's a principle of Scripture. He's always doing things, and, and I, I take that from Scripture. When Jesus referred to that in John 5.17, he's talking about God not only being active, but many times he's doing new things, or at least it appears new to us, and that really resonates with me because of what's going on not only around our country, but around the globe right now, that God is active, he is working. Jesus said, I myself am working, and that they're right, working right up till now. And here's what that reminds me of, church, especially I would love to pray with you about this as we step into this passage on Luke this morning. That reality that God is always at work and that he's always doing things that may catch us by surprise requires you and I to be in this place where we have to adapt to him. In other words, we can't be demanding that he do things our way, but rather we look for ways to join him in his work. And that includes times like this during a virus. We would love for God to return things the way they used to be. We'd, we'd love for, for instance, in church to have things the way they were back in January. But God hits the pause button and says, I'm doing a new thing. And he's clearly working through what he's doing right now. He's, he's bringing people into the kingdom. He's drawing people closer to Christ. And so we find ourselves in the place saying, okay, how do you want me to adapt to what you're doing? I raised that issue not only in the letter earlier this week, but this morning, because it's very clear as you look at the passage we're going to look at this morning in the parables, that the people living in the first century, they thought they had God figured out, and they missed the new thing that he was doing. When Jesus arrived on the scene and essentially said, here I am, uh, they didn't dial into that too well, and, and Jesus kind of castigates them for that. And, and really admonishes them, and you'll see that coming out this morning. So I want to pray with you about that reality, that our hearts would be tuned into the way that God is working, that we would be willing to adapt to him and not asking him to adapt to us. He's the master, we're the servant, amen? Okay, so he's the master, we're the servant. That means the servant goes to the master looking for what the master wants us to do. Let, let's pray together, church, as we get ready to dial into Luke chapter 13. Lord God, I, I thank you for every person who's gathered in this moment, both online and virtually at home and those gathered in person in the auditorium for the privilege and the opportunity to know you better. I pray that you would speak through your word, the way you spoke through the song that we just celebrated together. You remind us once again who you are, what you've done for us, and the, the great price that was paid. We get to celebrate this morning in communion, that same reality. So as we focus, God, on the passage of Luke 13 this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes, cause us to be in this place where you're speaking to us about recognizing what you're doing, what you're doing among us, and that we would be willing to adapt to that. I especially pray, Father, for those who are still investigating and may not yet be in a relationship with you and trying to get answers resolved, perhaps even present in this service, God, 
that you, you would illuminate, that you would give eyes of understanding, that you would give wisdom, and that your Holy Spirit would be present and working. Father, we pray for all these things in Jesus' matchless name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, the reality of the Bible is that God is always at work. He's always accomplishing his purposes, but here's where we get caught short. Many times, his activities are a mystery. He catches us by surprise, like, I didn't see that coming, in the case in point, what we're going through right now. And those mysteries can leave us confused by thinking, I wonder what he's up to. What's his purposes in this? And like I said, you get to see elements of that today. We have been learning through the parable series about the nature and character of God. If you're new to New Hope, we've been working through this since October, and this is section three. You can get the previous sections of the books if you want to, but here's how God uses parables. He uses them to demonstrate his nature and his character, what eternity is like, what his kingdom is like, what his expectations of us are like, and today is no exception. In today's parable, Dr. Luke kind of sets the stage by letting us know that Jesus has an enormous crowd in front of him. You'll see that in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. We'll put that up on the screen for you. And he's teaching a fairly long exposition. I'll read that verse for you in just a second. But he starts in verse 1, and it goes all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. So let's look at that first verse, Luke 12, 1. After so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And from there, he launches into a pretty long explanation of the judgment of God. And he uses parables along the way, and he's talking about the final judgment. And he uses parables to help illustrate this so that we understand who he's speaking to and what he's speaking about. Now, according to Luke chapter 12, verse 1, he doesn't just have thousands in front of him. He has tens of thousands. The word myriads is used. So he's got a very, very large crowd who are extremely curious about Jesus. And so Jesus uses this opportunity, this particular setting, to launch into speaking again about the coming judgment. Where we left off last time was with Jesus telling us that we need to be keeping our eyes on the signs of the times. In other words, keep your eyes focused on the horizon. Keep looking at the big picture of the things that God's doing. As we saw two weeks ago, he said, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't know. Well, all of that is set up to where he's going in chapter 13 this morning. Before he ends chapter 12, he's rebuked the crowd. You can go back and read that later today. Around verse 50 or 55, he begins rebuking them for their ability to read the weather but not apply that same ability to reading the signs of the times. He said, you, you have the capacity to know when it's going to rain. You watch the weather signs, but you don't watch the bigger picture of what God's doing. Keep your eyes on the horizon. Now, obviously, every time you come to a parable, there's a backstory, And this one has no exception to that. They're not just randomly occurring in the Bible. What Dr. Luke is showing us here is that Jesus strings together pearls And these pearls of wisdom are dropped for us. And here again, a string of pearls is being sewn together because Jesus is driving home one major point he wants everyone to get. Let's go to chapter 13 and verse 1, and this is how he starts. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. 
Before we get into breaking that verse down, I'm personally very intrigued with this particular statement here because there's something very subtle that's being dropped in here. This is the third time that Jesus has been interrupted in this long discourse of information. Now, I know in the first century, it's not uncommon for people to engage with Jesus in the midst of conversation, but they're doing it right in the midst of his teaching. In other words, they're doing church in a completely interactive way. Uh, When we launched the Saturday night service several years ago and we began doing Q&A after the Saturday night service, I thought what we were doing was really unique in doing Q&A in the midst of the service. And then I find out Jesus has been doing it 2,000 years before me and he loves interaction. And this interaction that takes place here in the church is for people to engage with him and it's not uncommon for them to do that. So you find it in verse 13 of chapter 12, they interrupt him. And in verse 41 of chapter 12, Peter interrupts him. And then you find it here again, the third time. So Jesus apparently enjoys this very interactive environment and he's open to legitimate, honest, interactive conversation. But Luke doesn't tell us why they interrupt him. He doesn't tell us why they tell Jesus about the slaughter of the Galileans. So the best we can do is kind of speculate based on information we have. The report of Pilate's actions within the city of Jerusalem seems very abrupt. Like it interrupts the direction of Jesus' message. But remember what Luke is doing is he's stringing together pieces of information. He's he's putting together pearls. So this interchange about the Galileans being slaughtered actually does link with where Jesus is going. The impression that we have is that these messengers have just arrived. And they're bringing the latest news from Jerusalem. The way it's written in the Greek language is that it's fresh as though it just happened It's a brand new information. That they report directly to Jesus demonstrates he was not at Jerusalem at the time that it happened. Remember, he's making his way to Jerusalem. He's on the outside of the Sea of Galilee on the east side. So this incident that's recorded here, it's not found anyplace else in the Bible. It's not found anyplace else in history, but it fits exactly with what's known of Pilate's reputation. Pilate is the fifth procurator of Rome. He's the fifth governor that Rome has placed in Israel to oversee what they consider to be a pretty rebellious people. So he brings the law and he brings the force of Rome with him. And he had this reputation of being very inflexible, actually for being quite wicked in his behavior and being an individual who was given to bribery. And his administration was known for being corrupt And he carried out executions without trials. All these reasons gave the Jews who were living in Israel reasons to hate him. On top of that, he insulted the Jews constantly, publicly, in the midst of his speeches. So many historians look at Pilate and they would say that he lit the fuse of rebellion in Israel. That he's the source, as the leader of the government, how he's treating the Jews caused them to be infuriated. A couple things that you might not know about Pilate. Uh, Pilate, when he first arrived on the scene, he brought the Roman insignia with him. And the Roman insignia was a golden eagle. And this golden eagle was brought into not only the city of Jerusalem, but when he brought it in, this, this large statue, he actually took that statue and he put it over the gates leading to the temple. It infuriated the people of Israel that he would take the symbol of Rome 
an earthly construction and place it on God's temple. And to the degree that they were willing to die in order to get him to take it down. And so he relented and he took down the eagle and removed it. Later, Pilate is known for robbing the temple and stealing money from the treasury in order to build an aqueduct system in Jerusalem. And obviously that infuriated people. And when they rose up in rebellion against him, then he sent guards into the crowd, but they were dressed as civilians and they randomly pulled out their knives and just began stabbing people in the crowd, killing them. Later, when people found out that that was instigated by Pilate, they obviously were infuriated against him again. Now, in Israel at this period of time, there was only one place that you could offer sacrifices, and that one place was in Jerusalem, and the one place in Jerusalem was inside the temple within the compound. So here, in this story, it appears that Pilate has ordered an execution, an execution of some individuals as they came to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer sacrifices, And it's very difficult to see what could possibly justify this kind of action in such a moment as this. It's a gruesome picture of two things taking place at the same time. People have come into a church setting to worship, and guards break into the setting and begin executing people. We get no more detail than that. That's all the information that we have. But the incident is so fresh in the minds of people, they can't wait to tell Jesus The political tension between Rome and between Israel made revolutionary activity very, very possible at any time. And Josephus, who's a historian living in the first century, he records that among all the people that lived in Israel, the Galileans, they were most prone to rebellion against Rome. And so we find in verse 1, it's the Galileans who've been executed. Well, Jesus uses this interruption as a beachhead from which to launch into a deep dive concerning God's judgment. Let's go to verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Rarely in Scripture do you ever find Jesus giving commentary on current events. This is the one exception that actually that I can find. It's very unusual for him to do that and talk about news out of the headlines. But he has a reason for doing it. He's going to take this current event and he's going to shape it for eternal purposes. Since Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, anything that he says about Pilate is going to get there ahead of him because rumors travel really, really fast. So he's got a dilemma here. Anything that he says about Rome and and defending Rome could be perceived by the people as him being pro-Roman. But anything that he might say about the Galileans and about the Jews could be perceived as being pro for the actions the Galileans would rebel. And so Jesus finds himself in the middle. What you find him doing in classic fashion is he rises above the issue and turns it into a God conversation. He avoids the politics of it completely and begins calling conventional thought into wisdom and asks this question. Do you think that the reason they died was because they were worse than what you are? He's asking that because there's a theological thought at this period of time, and he asks that question and just lets it hang there momentarily because the common view in the first century is that any disaster that comes into your life 
Any calamity that comes into your life is because God is punishing you for sin. This is carried over from the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to the time of the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like Job that we talked about in May and June here at church. You have Job's accusers who show up and they see that he's suffering, he's got calamity in his life, and and they begin saying to him, well, you're only suffering this way because God's bringing punishment against you. By the time you come to chapter 22, Eliphaz, one of Job's good friends, says, is it not true, Job, because of the iniquity of your heart, God is bringing this against you? That's, That's a thought at that period of time. Now, clearly, God does bring punishment against individuals. But as a a rule, by and large, they thought any time by the first century rolled around that somebody had calamity, well, it must be God's against that person. You find that especially carried over into the New Testament in John chapter 9. Remember, Jesus is walking by the pool of Siloam, and there's a man who was born blind. And what do the disciples ask Jesus? Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind. See, they've got this conclusion. They've got a deep-rooted theology that God only brings calamity on people who've got iniquity in their heart, that there's some sin issue there that they haven't taken care of. Their thought is, you must be a really wicked person or God would never do that. So Jesus asked the question, do you think those people are worse than you because they died by the hands of Pilate? On the other hand, the view is, if you're doing good, well, then God must really like you. You you must be a great, you must have your act together. So he asked, is is that how you understand calamity? Watch his response in verse 3. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The the no that he gives back is really immediate. It's, It's emphatic in the Greek language. Emphatic to the degree that he's negating his own question, the one that he just asked. Do you think this is why this happened? No, that's not why that happened. And then goes on to say, unless there's repentance in your own personal life, each of you will be destroyed. Now that's a really bitter pill for those who live in Israel to swallow. Because all their life, He's got tens of thousands of people in front of him who have been raised by the the scribes' teaching and the Pharisees' teaching, and they've gone to synagogue. They've chased after the rabbis, and now Jesus is telling them to repent. Repent? We're the children of Israel. We're the chosen people of Abraham. So I can easily hear the crowd churning in their mind in this moment. What what are you talking about, Jesus? Repent. Repent. Now understand, Jesus is not debating with them whether or not we all have sin. The fact is we all have sin. The the Jews in the first century knew they have sin, but not everyone knows that they have to repent. People around this planet living right now in this day and age know they have sin in their life. There's never an argument with people about that. But not everyone knows they have to repent. So Jesus keeps pushing the issue. Go with me to verse 4. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Siloam is a section of Jerusalem. It's a region in what they call the old quarter today in the lower end of Jerusalem. It's where the east and the south walls come together. What's remarkable about that particular location is there's a pool there called the Pool of Siloam. 
And that pool is fed by water that comes through Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah dug a tunnel to make sure during wartime there would be fresh water that would flow into the city. Well, when it flows in, it ends up in the pool of Siloam. I told you earlier that one of the jobs that Pilate had as a governor of the area was to make sure that systems were in place, and he stole money from the temple in order to build an aqueduct. Well, apparently at this location where the pool of Siloam is at, there were towers that were being built as part of the aqueduct system. Now, whether it's scaffolding that collapsed or a wall fell and it brought this tower down, we don't know. The details are not there, but people who were in the vicinity, they're crushed when this tower falls. They might have been workers on the job site. They might have just been passing by. Jesus says, were those people worse than you? He's speaking about current events again. Watch his response in verse 5. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, the fact that you're alive doesn't mean that you're better off than they are. The word likewise that he's using here when he says likewise perish, that's not talking about a similar death, like you're going to die by the temple or you're going to die by the tower falling. He's making a transition there. He's referring to the judgment, the final judgment. You will all likewise perish, meaning you will all likewise face the judgment. The fact is, according to the Bible, all humans will face the judgment of God. Say amen if you agree with that. We will. Everybody will stand before God. And unless they repent, Jesus says, they're going to perish. In order to repent, though, you have to have someone who takes the punishment for you. But that's another part we'll get to in just a minute. What Jesus is driving at in this is a really strong reminder He's driving at the reality that we all have sin. Romans 3.23, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all sin, so we all deserve death. So his point is, don't try and make others' sins greater than your sin. You have sin. You deserve death. You must repent. And making it very singular and specific to these individuals. But now Jesus is going to push the issue even further. He's going to take them into a parable. And for those listening who think that they've escaped a fate like that of the Galileans because they're good people, he's going to point out to them, it's not because of your goodness, it's because of God's patience with you, that God is enduring you. So he begins telling a parable, verse 6. And he began telling this parable, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. So for three years, this farmer has been looking for product to come from his tree, and there's no figs, and he's really getting irritated with it. Now, before we break that part down, the scene is a vineyard, and a vineyard is a really fertile place in Israel. And those landowners who were wealthy enough to have a section of land set aside as a vineyard would many times put fruit trees in their vineyards, not just grapevines. So apparently, we have a tree here that's at least already four years old. I'll expand on that in just a minute. Israel in the first century was an agrarian society, meaning they made their living and their basis of their economy was based on agriculture. So as an agrarian society, Jesus is teaching them in an agricultural parable because everybody understood agriculture in that world. 
So they've got a vineyard in this scene. And the ground of the vineyard is really well cultivated. It's the most prepared, cultivated ground in all of Israel because they gave so much attention to their vineyards. So you've got a piece of land that's protected, it's watered, it's fertilized, and in many cases, a vineyard was guarded. There were guards that were set up around it to protect it. And when they would plant fruit trees, they would want to make sure nobody's stealing the product. So fig trees typically grew to about 25 feet and maybe 25 feet tall and 25 feet wide. And when they produced a fruit, think of the cherry trees here in Michigan because a fig was very much the size of a large cherry. So you've got a, a fruit that's pretty obvious. You can see if your tree is producing. And not only would it provide fruit every single year, fig trees flourished in the land of Israel. You can read about them a lot if you go to the Old Testament. But it was also an indication to the people of Israel of God's blessing, of God's hand on a farmer. If his fig tree was producing, you were considered to be blessed of God. There's a reason it's called the land of milk and honey, because they associated this kind of growth with God's blessing. But our passage says in verse 6 that he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. Now that's really unexpected. That's not common in Israel. Failing to produce fruit in a really fertile setting that's been cultivated and fertilized after three years, it's unlikely that that tree is ever going to be productive. It's unlikely that it's ever going to produce fruit. Not only is it not bearing, it's taking up ground that otherwise would be productive if something else was growing there. Now, if your mind, theologically, if you're a student of the Bible, is beginning to go to the, the thought of, why well, Jesus was there three years he was planting seeds in Israel three years, and it, it seemed to not yield a whole lot. The nation, by and large, was pushing back against him. There's theologians that have drawn that conclusion, have drawn that parallel, that maybe Jesus is laying a story under the story here. But let's go for the bigger one, the one that's more obvious. Let's, let's look at verse 7 now. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up ground? Since it's a rainy day, maybe you have some time on your hands later today. You won't be able to go outside and play. How about if you get out the book of Leviticus later today? And, and if that doesn't put you to sleep because it's, it's pretty laborious reading, go, go to Leviticus 19, and you'll find in Leviticus 19 that God had agricultural rules, rules for fruit tree farmers. And one of the rules that was most known by the people in Leviticus 19 is this. When a fruit tree was put in, the farmer was not to take any fruit from it for the first three years, leave it alone. And on the fourth year, the fruit that was produced and harvested, that belonged to the Lord. It's known as first fruits offering. On the fifth year, the farmer could actually realize a harvest. So we've got an individual, if that applies in this situation, this farmer has been waiting through the four years, and then we're told three more years he's not seeing anything. If that's been the case, no wonder he wants to remove this tree. No wonder he says, cut it down. And that's an expression of disgust in the original language. Why does it even use up the ground? It's a waste. And those listening that day would understand exactly where he's going. There's no mystery here whatsoever. The mysterious part kicks in when you get to verse 8 and verse 9. 
This is actually how the parable ends. Go with me to verse 8. And he answered and said to him, this is the vine dresser speaking, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. That's a really abrupt ending, right? The the, the parables that we've been studying so far, they don't typically end that way. Sir, would you give this, please, landowner, sir, would you give this one more shot? Just give me one more opportunity to do what I do. Let me treat the soil for one more year. Give the tree one last chance. But even the field hand, even the vine dresser, accepts the facts. If it doesn't bear then, well, then that's the end. And if it bears fruit next year, well, then fine. In your English translation of the Bible, you have the word fine in many translations. But the word fine is not in the most original, most trusted text. But how do you translate a shrug? In in Jewish language, there's a shrug going on there. If it bears fruit next year, well then, okay, common in the Jewish world. The word fine was translated for the Western readers who couldn't interpret the Jewish language that way. Fine, you wouldn't find there. He's just saying, okay, then cut it down. And that's the end. That's really abrupt. It's a very dramatic ending. See, the point is this tree is living with a really dim hope of survival. But if we translate this to the spiritual world, because that's what parables do, they take the physical and lay it alongside the spiritual, this tree that's living with a dim hope is also living in the presence of a God who's compassionate. We know that God is compassionate, that he's gracious, that he's kind, that he's merciful. Even though hope for fruit from this tree is dim, See, it's very significant that the parable ends the way that it does. It ends open-ended so that the listeners have to draw their own conclusion. Anybody sitting in that crowd of 10,000 that day would say, well, what happened to the tree? I want to know, did it produce fruit? Did they cut it down? But if they're thinking spiritually, if they're thinking the way that Jesus wanted them to think, if they're drawing the parallels, they're not really thinking about the tree thinking, what's going to happen to me? Because Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. And that's why he gave him this parable. What's going to happen to me? And that is where the parable stops. Let me just do a quick review with you. We're just stepping into this place where we're going to do communion in just a moment. And I want to show you how this all links together. Jesus has used this imagery of the physical world and he's paralleled it alongside the spiritual world and he's expanded on these two specifics you've been seeing throughout the parables over the last few weeks. He's very specifically, number one, addressed the importance of repenting. And that's why we looked at two weeks ago when he said, the son of man is coming at an hour you don't expect. What are you doing to be prepared for it? But now, number two, he's drawing this parallel to God's mercy. In the midst of God not yet coming, Jesus is emphasizing he's slow, he's patient to punish. He's not willing for any to perish. So first, hear me on this. On this issue of repentance, 
Maybe if you're new to church, that word is really even new to you. Repentance means you've gone one direction and you're turning and going the opposite direction. It has a, a very visual image for people. I've been doing this, now I'm going to do this. That's the word repent at its core. So on this issue of repentance, that's not something you put on a list of things I'm going to do in the future. God's saying you do it now. It's not something you do someday. The Bible declares repent now. Act on it because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know when the tower is going to fall. You don't know when the guards might come storming in. You don't know when a virus might impact your planet. What are you going to do to bring things into order in your life? So his point is, it's God's grace and it's mercy which has given you this moment. Act on it now. That's why the Bible implores people to respond, like in Isaiah 55. Let me show you this verse on the screen. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, and for he will abundantly pardon the Bible is really clear. We all deserve to die eternally. I know many of you know that. I know you've known that for years. The Bible is very clear about that. But instead, God lets us live. He lets us laugh. He lets us enjoy the blessings of being on this planet. And if we honor him, we get to enjoy eternity with him in the next life. That's the kindness and the patience of God. He's intending that his patience would lead us to repentance. So the fact that God is not in this moment bringing an end to all things here and now and just stopping it all, it doesn't mean that he's approving of what sinners are doing. It just means that he's merciful in his patience. You live in a day of grace. Would you agree with that? Okay, let's make this more interactive than just five of us. Would you agree that you live in a day of grace? Yeah, yeah we do. This is called the age of grace. But the age of grace is coming to an end. We don't know when. Jesus just says, it is. The Son of Man is going to come in an hour that you don't expect it. The age of grace will come to an end. The fact that we get to breathe another breath is only because of the grace of God. It's only because God is merciful. So I especially want you to hear this as we end this, especially if you're new to church and you're investigating the things of God. If Jesus has gone to all this work to present this parable as a warning, and that's what it is, he's presenting it as a warning, then logically you have to conclude this warning has been given to produce hope. In other words, why give a warning if there's not a way out? It's just a warning to scare people. He's given the warning to produce hope that there is a solution, that there is a way out of this. I'm compelled by the reality that Jesus is simply asking the question, are you prepared when the tower falls? And I know many of you are, but you know people who aren't. And maybe you find yourself new in church this morning. Maybe you've dialed in for the first time and you're watching online. Are you prepared when the tower falls? That's what Jesus is asking. His point through all this is this issue. Just because Pilate's soldiers didn't stop and kill you on the way to the temple doesn't mean that God likes you any more or any less. Just because the tower fell on your neighbor and it didn't fall on you 
doesn't mean you're better than your neighbor. Just because the ambulance doesn't show up at your house this afternoon, but at your neighbor's house, doesn't put you in the place where you're eternally better off than anybody else in the eyes of God. Unless you've dealt with this issue of repentance. Unless you've dealt with the issue of sin. And that is only possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Just waiting for the delayed amen on that one. It's true. It's only possible that way. Jesus alone can give that. So the true calamity, the biggest issue he's addressing here is not individuals who were killed in a temple. It's not people whom a tower fell on. It's not people who've been affected by a virus infecting our planet. The true calamity, the real calamity, will be when death comes, and it comes for everyone, will you eternally perish or not? And that's determined by relationship with Jesus. There's no other way around it. So according to Jesus, the real issue is not how people die or even the timing of their death. The real issue is that when they die, have they received the forgiveness of Jesus? And it's not just repentance, it's repentance in the name of Jesus. I want you to think, we're just getting ready for communion, think about what he did for you, and he he sent all of those who were following him in Matthew 28 out and gave the great commission. What did he say? Go out and make disciples. Go out and teach people about me. Teach them what? Teach them about repentance in the name of Jesus. A lot of people are sorry for the things they've done wrong. That's repentance in a form. But repentance in the name of Jesus, that's what gets you forgiveness. The one whom we celebrate this morning in communion. That he did that very thing for you. I want you to say amen if you agree with this. That he removed your sins, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, as far as the east is from the west. Okay. Then you have reason to lift the cup this morning. You don't have to worry about eternally perishing. God's dealt with all the judgment already for you. The judgment fell on Jesus. And that's why we praise him, right, church? That's why we praise him in communion. So you're going to pick up the elements in just a few minutes. I want to talk to you about what you're doing in detail here uh, because it's different than what we did last time. Last time we had cups that had a little cellophane cellophane seal on the top, and we found that those were really hard to open, and um, even the juice that was inside there was a little bit bitter in some cases. So we sent those back, and we have a new system for you this morning, and it's very sanitized. What you're going to find is two cups. So we want you to pick up two cups. In the bottom cup is the bread. In the top cup is the juice. So when you reach to pick up the juice, you're picking up the bread also. So if you've got two cups, don't try and put one back down. Both of those are for you. And when you just kind of twist it a little bit, the top cup will come out and the bottom cup will have your bread and and we'll take the elements together. I want to read for you though, the reminder, and this is a tradition here for us at New Hope, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what Paul told us about what you're about to do and why it's so significant. Hear me on this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, this is what was delivered to him from the Lord himself, and he wanted us to use this as part of the instructions for communion. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, 
He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, commonly I've reminded you of this, and I'll remind you again that what you're about to do is a witness. You're witnessing to the person on your right and on your left. If you're even doing this alone at home, you're reminding yourself, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as you pick up these elements, I'm going to encourage you to take them back to your seat, and we'll take the elements together. But for the reason Scripture tells us to examine ourselves, we allow time here at New Hope for you to take a moment before you get the elements and talk to the Father. Listen to this warning that Paul wrote. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This time for you to talk to the Father is always about examining yourself. And if you find you've got an issue that you haven't confessed, in the quietness of your seat, it's a good time to do that before you come up and pick up the elements. But in the same breath, praising and thanking God that we don't have judgment on us. We've been eternally forgiven because of what Jesus did. We don't have to worry about perishing. So take time right now, church. I encourage you to talk to the Father. Could I ask you to stand? We're told it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held up bread and he said, this bread will represent my body, which is broken for you. So in the same meal, he held up the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Father, I thank you for the witness of this church. I thank you for individuals who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are willing to say, I believe. Our, our belief is rooted in joy because we know that not only did we repent, we received forgiveness. And it all happened because of Jesus on the cross. So we praise you. We praise you through this song. We thank you that we've received forgiveness. Allow us, Father, to praise you more as we finish the song and just joy from our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.